Hello and welcome to episode 201 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Sean McArdle, writer of The Fuhrer and the Tramp, coming into in trade soon from Sourcepoint Press, collecting issues one through five. This is Matt and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Sean, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Can you uh, lead us off with a bio about yourself and then give us the, the elevator pitch for this book? Hey, thanks, Matt. Noah, thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, I, I'm a graphic designer, filmmaker, and uh, I teach as a uh, part-time faculty member at Kent State University, and uh, um, also create comics. <laughs> so uh, the elevator pitch for this book, if you're on the train, it's, uh, it's about Charlie Chaplin playing Adolf Hitler uh, while he's making The Great Dictator. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis are trying to sabotage him making the movie and and uh, Charlie is helped by uh, two of FDR's secret agents Errol Flynn and Hedy Lamar and they help him finish the movie and fight Nazis punch fascists in the face very nice and so you you were on a previous podcast and and you know we talked about this but how long was this sort of a, a story idea that that you had before it was you know, turned in, into a comic. And did you workshop this in the uh, the comics experience uh, boards and stuff like that? Um, yes, a little bit. I mean, what happened was, uh, do you remember the movie, the the uh, interview with uh, Seth Rogen, where he uh, he uh, makes fun of Kim Jong Un? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, uh, I remember that movie came out, and uh, Kim Jong Un. There was the, there was like all the Sony hacks, and then Kim Jong Un wanted to assassinate Seth Rogen which I just thought was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard was that a world leader wanted to assassinate Seth Rogen? <laughs> Who would want to assassinate Seth Rogen? And it just stuck in my head for a while. And I thought, you know, you know what? Even Adolf Hitler didn't try to assassinate Charlie Chaplin when he made the great dictator. And I was like, wait a minute, that'd be a great story. <laughs> Hitler tried to assassinate Charlie Chaplin while he's making the great dictator. And um, I pitched it to my buddy, John. He's a... Uh, we worked on a, quite a few things together and um, we hadn't worked on anything for a while. He was busy finishing his own personal graphic novel at the time. Also with Dexter Weed, the artist on uh, Fear and the Tramp. Uh, and, um, you know, I was trying to find something that we could work together on. And I really like that collaboration with him. So I pitched it to him and, you know, if I can get him to do this, if I can get him to go, I know it's a good idea. And I know that, you know, he's in for it. He's only done that about two other times in his life, to me at least. So, um, you know, he did the, and I, I knew that was that was the one we're going with. So, uh, as far as comics experience, I had been um, uh, talking to Andy Schmidt before comics experience uh, started, and I think he was just starting it. He was just doing consulting. I think he may have just left Marvel or was still at Marvel. It was really early on. And so I, uh, I, I, I consulted with Andy uh, with Fear and the Tramp, and he's, uh, he was the editor on the book, and he helped me uh, land the deal at Source Point, and, um, and, you know, that's why it's Comic Experience, Source Point Press. He also helped me navigate the waters of um, actually getting the rights to using Charlie Chaplin and using the Tramp. So you know, there's a lot of back-end stuff that Andy helped with. That was really cool. I'm forever grateful with for for Andy and comics experiences help. 
So. Would you be able to to expand a little bit upon uh, how you you worked out uh, the the Charlie Chan issue or the Charlie Chaplin issues? I was going to ask the same uh, thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, go ahead. What are you going to say? I was going to ask the same thing that Matt just asked. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. If you could elaborate, that would be great. So I I did a Kickstarter, and here's the problem with having a successful Kickstarter is that people see it. <laughs> <laughs> now. Other people had done books on Charlie Chaplin, had done comic books before, and uh, and either and I had talked to them. I, I had reached out to them and I had talked to them, and everybody assured me it's like, oh, he's a public figure, you know, and the people that I that had had successful kickstarters, not as successful as mine, but pretty successful kickstarter, successful enough that they fulfilled their their goals and fulfilled their obligations, um, and. Uh, there were several, there's several of them and they had no problems. So I, mine was very successful. And the second day, or it was at the wires, like this, this, we had one or two days left. I got a cease and desist from the chat oh, wow. organization. So I, I, uh, I called up uh, Andy and talked to him about this. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't want to have to uh, you know, not do this thing. It's like, I'll, I'll just do it anyway. They could sue me for the nothing that I own. <laughs> I don't know what to do about this. So I worked with him about it, with it. And um, we, uh, we uh, I used, uh, he put me in contact with uh, Travis. I don't know how much I'm allowed to get into. I'm, I'm just going to be open with it because, you know, I think it's interesting myself. And at this point it's, you know, butter under the bridge. I never signed a non-disclosure, so whatever. Uh, so, uh, Travis McIntyre, he's the, uh, the, um, CEO of SourcePoint. I talked to him and I ended up, George Geddes is their lawyer for their entertainment stuff. So I started talking to, to George and, uh, and that, that's one of the things why I locked right into SourcePoint is because they navigated all those waters for me, helped me out with all that stuff. George was awesome. He drove all the way down from like, he drove like an hour and a half down to meet me at a Starbucks and consult with me for two hours about it. Uh, and this is all like, as my Kickstarter's ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, here's what I learned from George. <laughs> and George is a trademark lawyer. And he, uh, and, and he basically told me, he's like, yes, public domain characters and, you know, lots of Chaplin stuff is in the public domain. That was what I was going with is like, Half of his short films are in the public domain. He's a public figure. And so I thought I could get away with it. But he's like, yes, but the tramp is a trademark. It's like if you would do a, uh, if you've made a comic book about Ronald McDonald or Mickey Mouse, they're trademarked characters. That trademark is different than a copyright. And it's different than being in the public domain is different than being a public figure. Once somebody puts the TM next to the thing, you know, it gets extremely litigious. And the Tramp is a trademark character. Uh, so any likeness of the Tramp, um, you're going to fight an uphill battle. Like the other ones, you might have a case. There you have zero case. <laughs> Just none whatsoever. It'd be like if I decided to make a book on McDonald's and have, you know, a big M on it and stuff. And, and, and you know, they're not going to go for that. <laughs> You can't you can't step onto corporate you know corporate uh, trademarks and stuff. So we navigated that and it, it went back and forth quite a bit. Um, and um, actually, you know, it was between George and my uh, uh, my collaborator John Judy. He uh, 
he wrote a an excellent letter, a beautiful letter. Now, in the forward to the Kickstarter version, I should have put it in the tray. It's so beautiful. And the Kickstarter today, um, you know what? I still have time. I still have time. I could probably get it in there. Good. Thanks for bringing this up. I, that definitely needs to be in there. <laughs> so I, I paraphrased it and turned it into this intro to the book. But he wrote a letter to the chaplain estate that was so beautiful. And between that and George, you know, they they allowed us to to move ahead, you know, with compensation, of course. But you know. <laughs> so you guys, SourcePoint owns the comic book rights to doing the tramp then? Or is it just on this one basis you guys get to sort of like license? Yeah, it's licensed this one basis. Okay, that's interesting. So, yeah, so um, the way that those rights are tied up is uh yeah that's through source point you now they they license the character so or, the, or the, not the character they license the trademark they license the trademark so it's a licensed property so that's awesome i'm happy that's licensed you know that way um if i like what i my my dream is like to go over to uh switzerland whenever they do the every year they have like chaplain's birthday party and everybody on his birthday everybody dresses up there's like a hundred people dressed up like chaplain at this Charlie Chaplin convention at the Chaplin Estates. I just want to go there and, you know, I don't know if you can set up stuff. I don't know if like, there's a little artist alley <laughs> for one. <laughs> but, you know, I just want to go for one thing. And two, I'd like to, you know, get my book in that gift shop. <laughs> nice. Even if I had to drop with it, <laughs> you know, just, just walk in with a stack of them and put them on the shelf at the Chaplin Estate and walk out. <laughs> That's awesome. I shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are a number of other uh, public figures. Did you did any did you run into any other issues? Uh, no, I be quiet. I, I should be quiet about that as well. Okay. Um, so let's hopefully, let's, I, hopefully the Hitler estate doesn't come out. Very, very true. Very true. That's 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 very true. Um, so let's let, then let's shift a little bit into to comic making. Uh, at what point did you uh, did did Dexter come in to 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 be the artist on the on the book? Right off the rip, I, I I love working with Dexter. Um, we I like okay, so John did that one book with Dexter. Um, it was called Swerve. It's uh, a wrestling noir. In fact, that was one of the other times that John did this is I pitched that to him. It's like, hey, the two things that you always talk about and use as metaphors, even if I don't understand wrestling, you still try to use that as a metaphor to describe something else, which makes me more confused. Um, <laughs> wrestling and noir are always his go-tos for like making metaphors. And so I was like, hey, hey you just have to write what you know. So put those two together. Why don't you look at, make a wrestling noir? And he goes, and he made a wrestling noir. <laughs> I helped out on it. I did like lettering and some like, art direction and stuff like that so and worked a lot with Dexter too um mainly you know I like I come from a, a an art background and uh there are sometimes that you know I knew what John wanted sometimes kind of hard to communicate um so then I would like do a thumbnail sketch and send it to Dex so we did a lot of that throughout even even his book um and um uh before so then at the same time I'm like Try, John's like finishing his wrestling noir. He does all like six issues, works for, over it for a couple of years with Dexter, gets it done, gets it printed, gets it published. 
is posed by Arcana, you know, he goes through the whole thing. Um, and um, me, I'm writing like, I, I'm, I'm writing one issue and then like a pitch for like six different books and then sending it around, you know, trying to land something that way. Uh, so we both did probably like six issues of Dexter. John did his on one thing and it got printed and published and made. I did six number ones with full pitches and full like colored lettered issues and sent them around to publishers and got nothing. <laughs> so I was like, ah, I should probably do it John's way. I could have like, if I would just chose one of those stories that I really was into and just finished the damn thing, I would actually have a book that I could hold in my hands instead of six pitches that I'm, you know, but you know what? I would kind of cut my teeth on those pitches, mm -hmm. not in public. <laughs> no one's gonna <laughs> those. I'm never going to release those. Went back and they're not bad. They're just not, they're not me anymore. They're not reflective of me. So I don't, I would never pursue them again. You know, I changed as a person, as a writer, as an artist, and I was going through a divorce and shit. So I was like very angry. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of a little bit angrier than I am now. <laughs> Fear and the Tramp kind of helped me get through that and get, get to more of a happier place and more, you know, optimistic place, you know, while, while the whole world is falling apart <laughs> throughout 2016 and 2020, I'm making a book about it. That was what was weird. It became very, very pertinent. <laughs> very true. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> well, there's a line, I think, in the first part of the book where you talk about like, um, uh, I think like what's when Hitler's watching the movie, like in the first issue, he talks about making Germany great again or something like that, or maybe Greta, not Greta, sorry, I'm um, there. Why am I? I'm getting her name wrong. Riefenstahl. No, well, yeah, Riefenstahl, and then um, um, uh, the 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 two agents. It's um, it's Errol Flynn, and it's um. Oh, Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar, maybe Hedy Lamar makes reference to it again. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, wonder when this came out. That kind of thing. Like, yeah. wonder when this was written. <laughs> no. That isn't a new statement. It just really yeah. got co-opted. Now, I was writing that in 2015. So oh, wow. that was starting to percolate. But at the same time, I read Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And that was something that was there. Uh, now, I may have gone back and kind of sanded the edges off and made it fit a little bit better but it was already there you know that was all which is a weird feeling whenever i'm writing this thing it's like it's all a lark it's like haha we'll punch hitler in the face and knock his mustache off and you know nazis that's done that's not a thing anymore and then all of a sudden i'm watching slowly as like holy crap we're steering right into this shit yeah <laughs> you know i read the book it's very very large it's a very large book rise and fall of the third Right. And, you know, it's like we're headed right in direction. We're doing all the same things. Why are we doing this? Everybody needs to read this book now. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that that kind of while I was reading it today, I was I was thinking about that because um, there's obvious like, you know, there are obvious things in there where it's like, OK, that didn't really happen. But then every once in a while you reference some deep like cut Hollywood lore. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's true. <laughs> you know, like, and um, like, you know, there are things like, of course, like FDR didn't meet with Charlie Chaplin to make right. the great dictator and stuff like that. But then there's like reference to like, of course, like Hedy Lamar's like first film and stuff like that. And yeah. then like you make reference to like, you know, Errol Flynn, like, you know, his love life. And then of course, Charlie Chaplin's love life and stuff yeah. like that. And 
uh, other things too. Like I, I think like didn't and like I think you had that one detail in there about him writing while he was in the tramp costume. Yeah, and that was a that was a fact too. That and I was like, oh, that's, that's that real. Yeah, that was a yeah, that kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, so like I guess I wanted to know your approach to sort of fact and fiction with this book. Like, what what? How did you approach that? Like, how did you be like, okay, this is going to be real. This is not going to be real. Obviously, you know that kind right. of thing. Well, okay, so like Dexter was already working on some other stuff in 2015. So I had like a year that I just like started writing, but, and then working with John on it, the way we'd work is, that was one of the reasons that I loved collaborating with John and why this project worked is we both have like a love of old Hollywood. Now, John also has like these other pieces, like he really loves FDR. Like he has a bust of FDR in his living room. And, um, you know, so like the FDR stuff, I knew that that was something that he was going to take hold of and write. Um, There's some other little things that I knew that he would be able to grab onto and and do a better job than me. so we kind of just spent that time like collaborating and working on this and breaking this down. So there might be little pieces that he knew from Hollywood lore and from books that he's read. And he has a whole like, he has a massive library and he has like like a whole section on just like FDR. He has a whole section on Charlie Chaplin, you know? I have like two books on Charlie Chaplin, you know? <laughs> I love Charlie Chaplin, but you know, it's not as extensive as John's. So I read Charlie Chaplin's autobiography, poured through that, uh that's i think john is the one that told me about the iodine uh he read that somewhere um which i i that's not the smoothest way that i pull out that little plot point i I just had to get it in there it's just too cool and i didn't know how to tip that whole thing with the iodine but basically the whole thing was charlie chaplin with with penis penis with iodine for real because he thought it would keep him from getting chlamydia and syphilis um (laughs) And so I use that as like a gimmick through the whole thing that there's iodine being passed around throughout the whole book from the beginning to the end. It just just because that it's just such a weird little thing, a little weird little quirk with uh, Chaplin. Anyway, um, so there was like that. Um, but so I read all his autobiography, watched all the movies over and over and over again, got all the criterions of them and watched all the special features, started watching a bunch of, of, of um, Errol Flynn's movies uh, and Hedy Lamar's movies read both of their autobiographies. And then anytime I had a scene that was like real, it, I highlighted them and stuff and made notes. But at the same time, anytime I had like a scene that I was coming into, because the way I would break it down is I would like write every page. I would break down each issue. So yeah, you guys really get into this part. A lot of people don't, this is a little too much, a little too. So what I would do is break down every issue into like, think of it as three acts. So. I have my, my macro story, five issues, and break that into three acts. So issue one is first act, issue two, three, and four, and middle act, and issue five, and well, it was going to be six, but then we bound them together. So issue five is like third act. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, now I got my structure. Now I know where my plot points need to be. I know my inciting incident needs to be at uh, the end of issue one. You know, I, I know that my midpoint is, you know, going to be like midpoint of issue three. You know, so I have every, my Dark Knight of the Soul is going to be issue, issue four, the last page. So I have all that blocked out. Then I take each issue and think it's going to be like, you know, I try to hit 24 pages. I always hit like 30. It's really hard for me to condense it. And um, so then you, but if you go 30, it's even easier. So you have your first, like, um, what, 10 pages, eight pages. That's your first act. The next, uh, the next batch up to like issue, page 20, 
there's your middle act. Probably no, probably like 24 if you're going 30 pages. Then that uh, pages, you know, 25 through 30, that's your third act. Then it would take each one of those down and break them down into the third act, three acts. So by doing that, I could it it really kept it structured for me, which is what something I was bad at before, and I knew I needed to learn that skill. Jeez, my cat attacked me. So uh, <laughs> yeah, say hi, Drusilla. I, anyway, I, I my, my my camera went black because my cat was doing the same thing. So I understand. <laughs> oh, that's what that was. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like Slender Man coming in your room or something. No. <laughs> oh, sorry, I interrupted. You go no, ahead. Yeah, so I was talking about Axe Structure. She probably got bored of that and told me to move on. <laughs> I love it. Keep going. But so, like, I break it down that way. And so then I like, so, like, if, if uh, pages one through nine are like my first act, then I break that down. Then pages one through three are first act, the first act. And then uh, four through uh, like seven are middle act. And then I have to wrap it up in two pages. Whenever I would do that, then I would each page would just have like one line that says what's supposed to go on that page. So I do the entire issue that way. And then John and I would fill it in from there. And we would break it down and be like, okay, the back part of uh, issue one, okay, like the like I know I did the first sequence. I know I did the first sequence. Pretty sure he wrote the the the, the dinner sequence. That just seemed like a little more his repartee or whatever was going on. Pretty sure he wrote that. Then I wrote the little part where Charlie goes up to the room. And you, but we're kind of writing it together. We're bouncing it back and forth all the time. And then he writes something. I get it. It's in a Google Docs. And then I go back over top of it and change some lines and stuff or change some panel description back and forth. We did that for the whole year as we're going through these issues. And then um, um, by the time we get to um, or and then the FDR stuff, the FDR stuff um, was me playing a little King Solomon with John. I finally admitted to it and told him that because he's finishing his, his dissertation on his doctorate. But I want him to write my funny book for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I gotta find a way to con him into like not doing as this and you know writing my funny book. So um, I had the whole idea of Charlie being naked there in front of FDR. I thought it was funny, and so like I thought, okay, if I tell John I'm gonna write it this way, and if I tell him I'm gonna write it poorly, and, and lean into things that in the past he would always get pissed off whenever whenever I would take a story in this direction. And he, I had a tendency, I used to have a tendency, still do, but I had a tendency to go a little too far. And uh, so, I, so I told him, that. I was like, all right, well, uh, I guess I'll handle this part at the end since you don't have time to do the FDR stuff. So I guess we're just going to have him knock, Chaplin's going to knock him out, out of his wheelchair. And then, you know, FDR's face is just going to go right into his balls, you know, and then Charlie's balls are just <laughs> right off the FDR's head. <laughs> and, and John's not doing one of these. <laughs> and i just let it simmer like two days oh later boom i have the scratch <laughs> and it was beautiful like if you read that whole thing like he gets some humor out of it he doesn't have like the balls on the fdr's head but you know he he was able to play that out and then it, it's funny and then like the last two pages then you notice that it's the, like how that section has to wrap up the last two pages of your finale or your final act, those last two pages all of a sudden have such gravitas and such import. And that's why he had to write that because I couldn't have nailed that. I could not have nailed that like he did. And he just freaking nailed that gravitas. Like you feel the weight of what FDR is saying. And you have to feel it because Charlie has to feel it. And uh, he, it was beautiful. Like 
that is the collaboration I love. Now I had to manipulate him in order to get it done, but that's and I know that he loves it. He because he thought we should just end it with a reveal of um, you know that big splash page reveal. Uh, you know, there's there's a splash page of FDR where Chaplin he's naked and he just sees FDR sitting in the corner turning on the light. And he's like, ah, because you know he's Charlie's busy painting his dick with the iodine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so John thought we should just end there, and then you know you go into the next issue, and then they refer to it. But to me, there was so much more meat on that bone. You know, there was so much more like there was so much like story there. There was. To me, I always say, it's a term that I use, I say, like, the story feels pregnant. It feels like this scene is pregnant. It feels like it's, we've got to, you know, deliver this scene. It's like, it's it's burgeoning. It's like right there. There's more there. We've got to just, you know, get everything out of that scene. And that's how I felt with that scene. It's like, there's just more there. There's, I think we're ending it too soon. And it was like a disagreement we had. Um and, you know, it was obviously taken as a 30-page first issue instead of 24 or whatever. But um, um, I don't know. I, 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 it's one of my favorite scenes. I love that scene. John killed it. John killed it's, it was the scene that sort of made me realize that I was like, okay, yeah, I'm on board. That kind of thing. Like, this is a fun, this is really fun. And it's, uh, it's great. But there's some great moments in there. And I was wondering about this with, like, where this came from. Whether it was you or it was John or it was Dexter. Okay. there's sort of these like spot the difference panels in on a lot of the issues where it's sort of like you know same angle not seen of course like you said with like sort of the antics with like fdr that's a good example right there yeah. is that in the script is that something dexter brought to it like because there's a nice rhythm yeah. to those kinds of panels and then when they break it's like it's like you said it, it delivers like and that's page to page you know yeah. and that's really that nice really makes me happy that you found it out because that's me <laughs> oh, okay that's, that's my style you know, I really dig that kind of stuff. Uh, when I, I love reading that kind of stuff and I love making that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's kind of like my tempo. Uh, I find that to be funny and fun, you know? And I think it engages the reader in a way that uh, makes them stop and like kind of examine things and take the read a little slower, you know? Um, it's kind of a pacing thing. Uh, but also I, I think there's a lot of payoff there. Another thing with that too is, honestly sometimes too it's like all right i just need dexter like a, a, a double page spread where there's like 400 nazis and everybody's beating the shit out of these nazis and charlie's swinging from a chandelier and shit i gotta give him something a little bit like you know let him chill down and calm down for a moment because he really you know he kicked his ass i kicked his ass for a week while he made that page you know mm -hmm. and i know it's gonna be a bitch to color it which i'm coloring it so ugh. but uh so like, okay, I'll, I'll like bring the tempo back down. But I think that also works for a read too, as, a, as, as an audience member, you start, you, you want those peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. It's a very Spielberg thing, like where you have those peaks and valleys. Um, and I think that that gives it like a propulsive momentum. Um, so the stuff that's me is stuff like that. And, and um, uh, the other thing would be like anything that's a Rube Goldberg kind of looking page. And anything that's part in the story that's like Rube Goldberg-esque, that's, I love that kind of stuff. I just, or anything that looks like Sergio Argonis going through the panels or gutters or whatever, you know, <laughs> anything like goofy like that, that's, that's my sensibility <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> that's great. That's really great. Um, and I'll let Matt ask a question. Um, yeah, sorry, Matt. Oh, no worries. So I have a question when you 
earlier you were talking about the the structure of you know act one act two act three and having the sort of the pages set up and i know for one thing because i've used it uh on your website you have these sort of broken down for for different like if it's a one shot if it's a if it's a three issue series um was that before this book or was that something that you made after you did develop the structure on on this book it was actually during during now, I rewrote those to make it work for releasing it to everybody else but originally those were i wrote this for john like like the, those were emails between us where it's like okay i think that this is the way that we could should construct this we should construct it like this. And then, you know, I kind of explained it, how like I saw how we should do the structure. When we first started collaborating, um, John, one of the reasons I like gravitated to John was number one, he's getting his PhD in, you know, freaking English. Um, and he was funny. And also I knew that he, he had a good sense of timing um, and structure. Like my stories lacked structure at that time. And I knew that, um, and he was really good at structure. So when we got to this one, it's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to show him that I'm taking this more seriously than I have in the past because that was a quibble of his, and uh, you know that I'm going to be methodical and I'm going to not get lost in the weeds. I used to always get lost in the second act. The second act would always kick my ass. So I figured, okay, if we break it down this way and I can break it down into smaller portions, then, and you know, I, I had been reading like every, there's not that many books on, at, well, there's more now, but there wasn't at the time that many books on like writing comics or breaking down comics the same way there was like screenplays. So I read like every screenplay book, everything from Scott Snyder to Sid Field to Robert McKee, and then started just like taking all of those and just boiling them down and finding like, okay, I like this thing from Scott Snyder, not Scott Snyder, uh, Blake Snyder. Yeah, Scott Snyder's the Batman dude. Blake Snyder, uh, the Save the Cat stuff, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, the uh, 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 Trudy. Oh, the 22 know. Elements of Story? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one. That's a great book. So it's I grabbed Truby, like, oh, right? Truby, Truby, that's it. Um, uh, I would grab like a little piece out of there. I grab a little bit out of McKee. McKee is like, I like McKee and there's some things that I really like about McKee. There's a lot of stuff I don't like about McKee. Uh, Sid Field is a little old, but I still like it. There's some solid structural things. I love Blake Snyder's terminology. What, how he coins things just succinctly like gets to the point of what this act, this key, this, this point in the story, the way it needs to turn, just the way he describes it in such a terse way, a catchy way that it, 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 you, you just know what that means. You understand when it's, you know, Dark Knight of the Soul or whatever. You understand what has to happen at that point. Now, I understand that the, like, the problem with that is it becomes like kind of formulaic, but you, it's, you're, it's not being formulaic if you use it as like a structure and you understand there is, there's a reason that we as humans expect the story to kind of flow and ebb in this certain direction because those are the kind of stories that ring true to us. And so those are the elements I try to find and put in there out of all these screenplay. That's one thing I realized too. Like I'm actually going through self-actualization as I'm reading screenplay books. It's like understanding the story of my own freaking life <laughs> through screenplay books and understanding it better. And so putting all these together and then like I kind of made my own. 
and it's through a bunch of stupid texts and emails with John. And I was like, okay, this stuff might be interesting. If I go through all these emails, sift them all out, and then just make something for the website that, you know, because other people were asking. And we're both teachers. We both teach. And uh, we get students asking all the time. Um, so I thought it was helpful to anybody else. But yeah, generally at the beginning, a lot of it is just the way that we would always talk about things. For instance, one thing is like, I've never seen anybody talk about it this way, but like the James Bond opening. Those are so perfect because it's the it's a microcosm of the macrocosm. It's it's the granularity of it is like, all right, you see everything that's supposed to happen in that first 10 minutes. You see James Bond's being suave as hell. He's got some gadgets, he gets laid and some bad guys come in. He beats them with the gadgets and he flies off a cliff on his skis and the Union Jack pops out and then you get the da-da-da-da. Then what's the rest of the movie? He's going to get laid. He's going to, you know, have gadgets. He's going to beat the bad guys. He's going to go off cliffs and da-da-da-da. You know, that's the rest of the movie. So basically you're setting yourself up. And it's like, hey, audience, here's 10 minutes to tell you, this is what you're in for. And if you like this, we're going to give you two hours of this thing. And so that, that that's how I structured my book then too, is like, all right, here's the first 10 pages this is kind of like what's going to happen. Charlie's going to get confused for being Jewish. They're going to chase him around. He's, there's going to be some tramp antics. He's going to beat up the Nazis. And then he's going to somehow get the best of Hitler and you know, put egg on Hitler's face and you know, eat his popcorn and drink his soda. The rest of the book is going to be Charlie's going to be chased by Nazis. He's going to you know, pull it out of his ass somehow, beat them and get away with it. And then at the end of the day, he's going to make Hitler look stupid, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, and I, I like your observation with sort of the James Bond, and it kind of made me realize that you can always tell how bad the James Bond movie is going to be by the cold <laughs> opening true. as well. That's true. Um, that's I was thinking about like the new ones, and this sort of plays into what you're talking about too, because like, like Casino Royale and Skyfall being sort of the best of the lightest four. Certainly their cold openings play into the th the theme of the film, you know, like sort of like, and it sort of breaks away from James Bond in sort of ways where it doesn't incorporate a lot of the stuff, but it sort of thematically right. gives you a, like, this is what you're going to feel for the whole film kind of thing. Like, this is the journey James Bond's going to go on. But then like Quantum of Solace and Spectre, like, you know, you have no idea yeah. what those openings are about, you know, yeah, that because kind of they thing. forget what James Bond is. Yeah. And you can tell yeah. right from the beginning. In the first 10 minutes, you can, you know, whether or not the writers and the director get the essence of the character. Yeah. And I, I think that, that, that theme thematis, the thematic cohesion is so important. And that's something that I like, it's sort of cool to hear you talk about that because that's sort of like, you're kind of boiling it down to a thesis statement. Like this is the tramp versus Nazis, you know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah. yeah. 100%. And that's, and that's that's sort of great to and you get that from the beginning with him sliding into like swinging into the theater, you know, and that and that is such a James Bond moment. But it, like you said, it just carries it through the rest of the book. Yeah, but slapsticky um, in the way that Chaplin needs to be, you know, and that's yeah. what fun was crafting those is like because because what, what, what was really fun. Well, when are we constructed this whole thing? Like, so we have Chaplin kind of have the whole thing, uh, you know, how it, you, you kind of understand what this whole thing's supposed to be like just from the pitch of Chaplin fighting Hitler and the Nazis. You know, you imagine a Chaplin movie with him fighting Hitler. But then, you know, it's like, I got to round this out more. And I wanted a Luke Leia Han situation. You know, I want that kind of mm. triangulation, you know, where you have a guy, you have him being kind of the uh, 
naive, um, you know, the, the neophyte, uh, the Luke, and then you have the cocky swashbuckling, awesome, badass guy that everybody wants to be with Errol. <laughs> and then you have the girl that they both want to be with, but you don't really know if she wants to be with either one of them, but she's always saving their asses. <laughs> she's the one that's pulling them out of the fire. She's the one that's saying, jump into the you know garbage chute flyboy, you know? She's the one that's that's saving the day. So I wanted that triangulation. So it's like, okay, so who would I get? Now, first I was thinking Clark Gable and um, Ingrid Bergman. And it's like, okay, those don't really work. And then uh, it's like, it obviously has to be all Flynn. Okay, let's go with Flynn. So in the re and, and there, was, there was another part that I wish I could have got in there, but I could not fit it in there, which is the big part with Errol is he was like, also I wanted Douglas Fairbanks, but Douglas Fairbanks was too old at that point. Yeah. Errol Flynn kind of took over and there, I talk about slightly in there that, uh, that, you know, Errol took over the Douglas Fairbanks, but one of the things I found from my research, and I never really found anything. It's, I never found anybody talking about it directly. What I found was, you know, looking at the production notes and looking at other news articles and stuff at the time. And one of the things that happened was Douglas Fairbanks died. And of course, Chaplin is like at his funeral and he's sitting in the front row. And, you know, how, and at the same time, he's making the great dictator. And it just added another layer of weight to the entire story to me because it's like, all right, so the great dictator, Chaplin, is moving away from yeah. uh, being the tramp. He's retiring the tramp. He is, this is his first movie he does not as the tramp. This is the first movie he does as a talkie. So he's going through some changes, but another huge change is his best friend dies. All of his friends are like aging out and there's not in movies anymore. And, you know, um, uh, Mary Pickford is selling off her stock to you know, United Artists and everybody's kind of getting away from it. And he's got to, he's kind of got to kind of grow. He's got to grow as a filmmaker, but also as a person and find new friends and find new relationships and stuff. And that just kind of added another layer to it too. And I really wanted to get Fairbanks in there, but it just, every time I tried it kind of like, it slowed the story down. Mm -hmm. it, it, it took away the, the propulsiveness of it. So I think it's there. And that's why Errol Flynn just totally worked because it automatically created this animosity. And, and see, originally in the original drafts, there was a whole thing with him going and seeing Fairbanks on his deathbed and then him going to Fairbanks funeral. And that was one of the reasons he decides to leave and go on the, Go with Arrow on the Zaka, but um, uh, the it's it's like that. Arrow is like kind of replacing his friend, and he has a lot of anger about that and animosity toward that. And he eventually comes around on Arrow, and Arrow reading his autobiography and stuff. Oh my God, that guy was a magnificent bastard! <laughs> what a magnificent bastard! <laughs> awful awful human being but oh my god was he amazing <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that guy with a me too he was me too back then jesus christ he was me too then <laughs> oh my before god. it was even a thing <laughs> but man that guy was crazy uh, and that was one of the things i came to with it and i have charlie dealing with that is like and i and it's kind of like what i read and what i started to love about errol 
like I read his autobiography several times. And anytime I would come to like having to write an Errol's part, I would grab that and I'd start reading a couple of chapters and get his voice in my head while playing like, you know, the Seahawk or whatever in the background and try to get his voice and the way that he, his presence and the way that he moves and try to illustrate that in the page. Um, and then take screenshots and send those to Dexter's. Like, he, this, is, this is how he moves. This is his pose. This is how he needs to look. Um, and then try to get that into the dialogue. But by doing that, it's kind of like, I know I created a new Errol Flynn in my own head. And that Errol Flynn, I might be right. I actually don't know. There's a level of insecurity there because as magnificent and awesome as this dude was and the things he did was crazy. Like I, I talk about all, a lot of them in the book. He was, he was hunting pygmies in like New Guinea. I mean, he was yeah. treasure hunting in New Guinea and open sailing across the Pacific and, and, and wooing like old ladies and stealing their jewels. And that's why he had to flee Australia, just a bunch of crazy stuff like that. Uh, and you know, he would go to Hollywood and talk about this stuff and everybody just thought he was full of shit for real. Like everybody thought he was an asshole and he's kind of full of shit, but he kind of wasn't. He was kind of a legit deal. So you're in Hollywood where everybody's kind of full of shit. And then you get this guy that is the legit deal and nobody believes him <laughs> and nobody like it or that nobody likes him because it kind of reveals how fake they are. <laughs> if you know what I mean? You wow. know, kind of reveals their insecurities, but it creates a level of insecurity within him. And so that was one of my favorite scenes is whenever I popped that, whenever I finally got to that and I was able to pop that part, I, it just made me, I just felt connected to the story where I'm like, I'm not writing this thing. I'm pulling the fruit off the tree. You know, this is, this exists in the ether and I'm just doing an Alan Moore thing where you, uh, you know, summons the, the God of the Harris, Paris Hilton on a snake and eat from that tree of whatever that story is, you know? And, but it was there. It was just like, okay, so how can I show that just to give you this moment where you see behind Errol and you see a little bit of his insecurity and his, his humanness and his, his, his weakness and his vulnerability and then just subvert it and go right back into it. No, Errol can't allow you to get that close to him. He's got to push back immediately. You know, that was that was a lot of fun. And so Errol became one of my favorite things to write. He, he just did because he he was just so rich. He was so just such a deep, rich well of a character. So was Eddie. Oh, my God. She's all three of them were the triumvirate. They, they all three of them were so deep. Yeah, I was like, I could it's great talking to you and i think this just hearing your excitement about the the your writing and of course these real people is selling the book better than like any logline pitch and things like that so i'm just happy that you were able to just go on that 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 long soliloquy about how great these people were um because it's i love them <laughs> it's getting me excited i'm like yeah I'm like now i want to go start at the beginning again and read it awesome. you know like so. uh <laughs> Yeah, it's um, yeah, like uh, it's it's infectious your excitement, and I think oh, that shows in the book. You know, I like I, I can tell there's some uh, real love. Yeah, well, I this is a summation of everything that I've gone through as a creative person. You know, I started off in college as a and I wanted to make comics, and the art professors are like, mm, comics, no, you know, that's. Mm. Yeah you know, my painting teachers are like, what are you painting? You're, and I'm painting like comic covers and stuff. They're like, this is an art. This is illustration. 
And I'm like, yes, please tell me what is illustration? I don't understand the difference. And he's like, go down to admissions and talk to the guidance counselor and ask them to take a, you know, illustration 101. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he's trying to slam it, but I'm like, no, that's what I want. And so I go down there and I get in the illustration class and no, they're doing like Norman Rockwell. I love Rockwell and I learned so much and I love Maxwell Parrish and I love, you know, uh, the classic illustrators, but they're wanting to do like magazine covers and stuff. And they're st still turning their nose down at comics, you know, at comics that's, you know, uh, and it, somewhere along that way, I just kind of lost my zeal for mm. everything. Plus also it's the, you know, the nineties and comics kind of suck for a bit. <laughs> so for that. Plus, what? So what are you talking about? <laughs> that was the age of Wildstorm. Yeah, exactly. On. So, hey, when I was 15. Savage Dragons. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but also at the same time, you know, I'm in college and it's like, uh, you know, I got limited funds and I could either, you know, take a girl out on a date or I could like go buy some body <laughs> books. So you kind of wane away from that. And, you know, then I had to figure out like, oh, how am I actually going to get a job doing this stuff? And I ended up in graphic design. And so I'm doing graphic design and that's getting the furthest away from that where now nothing I make is representative of me. I am going to the client, the clients tell me what they want and I'm designing and trying to satisfy what the client wants. And I became more and more successful as a graphic designer, the more and more that I could like intuit what my, uh, the client's uh, visual sense was and what the client thought was good and then play into that. It didn't necessarily mean that I thought it was good. I would try to steer them into something that was like, I thought was a little bit better, but I'm steering, you know, I'm kind of pushing them and persuading them to like the good option to the point where I'm, I became, I became good at this. I like could make a logo, take it apart into three parts because here's what I found out. If you make, you give like client three different logos to, you know, three different options, they're going to look at those and they're going to be like, oh, I like this part and I like this part and I like this part. Why don't you put them all together? And then I have a Frankenstein logo happened all the time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make a pre-built Frankenstein logo. I'm going to create a logo, take it apart into three parts, change it enough to, so that they work as three separate things, but then see if the client actually picks up the breadcrumbs and puts it back together. And most of the time they did. And that's whenever I felt like, okay, I was successful. I, I, I got them to pick the good option instead of creating a, you know, a freaking Cronenberg, you know? <laughs> But then, you know, I'm, I was like 35 and I hated the place I was working at. And so I put together a new portfolio and I'm, I'm there like putting the, the brochures and everything in my portfolio and trying to like, okay, I like this piece. I really like this brochure. I want like an award for it and shit, but it's like dog-eared. So I, I, uh, I called the sales guy that asked him if he had any more of those catalogs. And he's like, that was like four years ago. Of course, no, I don't have any more of those catalogs. I threw them out. Like, all right, I'll call the printer. So I call the printer because they usually kept like a reserve of our stuff. He's like, no, that was like four years ago. I threw all that shit out. And I'm like, oh my God, the only place this exists is here. Like I spent so much time on this and we had to print one of like 500,000 in like all of the, my, all of our customers and everybody that had it. That's a four-year-old catalog. They threw it in the trash. It's like, I make garbage. I literally make garbage only place oh. this is in my portfolio and <laughs> it was like it, that catalog I still hold on to it because that is what makes me think about it. I was like and I didn't even like it oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I compromised on this thing 
and I spent so much time on it and it like it only exists in my portfolio and it's like and that's why I started looking at everything else in my portfolio it's like none of this represents me none of the I, I spent all this time at college I could have been a dentist if I wanted to do something that didn't matter to me <laughs> that would have made a lot more money you know and so I was like okay I need to make something for me I need to make something that matters to me and it was fear in the tram so what, what it turned into was going through that whole thing and reminded me of something my art history teacher said. He was talking about uh, Renoir, or not, yeah, it was Renoir. Um, and uh, Renoir liked to paint like women that were extremely fleshy, you know, you know, um, you know, larger women. And he liked to paint like, you know, very voluptuous women. And he got made fun of because of it. And uh, I think it was, sorry, it was an art critic comes up to him and is like, you know, he's writing a thing on him. He says like, why do you paint women that are so voluptuous? And Renoir goes, I paint with my dick, you know? <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious whenever I was like 18 years old. It's like, yeah, he's a dick. And it's like, you know, it's a stodgy, you know, my, my art history teacher, he's got the, you know, the tweed jacket with the leather patches and stuff and probably smokes the, the pipe. I don't know. And then he's like, he says it in French, so it's even funnier because it's like it goes highbrow, lowbrow, really quick. My favorite <laughs> humor. And so I would that was always like a funny joke I would think of. And then I realized like, oh no, Renoir was right that he was not making a joke. He paints with his dick. He paints what turns him on. He's not trying to turn on anybody else. What turned him on was voluptuous women, and that's what he painted. He was not trying to turn on anybody else, just himself. And I realized I spent so much of my life trying to make things that turn on other people and not myself. So I just need to make stuff for an audience of one. I need to make something that makes me happy, that, that just turns me on and not worry about anybody else, not worry about any other critic. Not The only critic I need to satisfy is myself. And once I was able to do that, man, it's so freaking liberating. <laughs> it, it's like, I, because then it, it changed everything and made this whole book possible. Just that those two thoughts, realizing I was spent my, you know, 15 years of my professional life making garbage and the, the thought that I need to make stuff that turns me on and only focus on myself. Um, because you got to get rid of all those other voices in your head. Um, you got to get rid of all the, all the critics, all, all the other critics that are existing inside your head and just listen to the critic that is, that is most you. Um, and once I was able to do that, I was able to make this and, um, I was able to change my barometers of success because success, and this is something that John always would say, but I had to learn it in my own way is that I need to make this for myself and not worry about success. So my level of success, I had to make a concrete image of success was getting this thing printed. That's why I was going to do it straight through Kickstarter so that I did not have to ask permission from anybody. The only person I needed permission from was myself. It, but, you know, it sounds like I do if I'm going through Kickstarter. No, that was just to make, I, I could have done it myself. It's just like, well, if I don't have to pay for the printing, cool, you know, that's all I wanted. Hey, that's that's for yourself too. You save money. Yeah. 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 So I set my barometer, my, my barometer for like the Kickstarter. I found out how much it was to print it and then ship those out. And that was what I set my limit at, you know, uh, so that the printing and the uh, shipping was covered. And I made that in a day. It was like, you know, probably too low, but still, you know, 
also then I made it in a day, so I had a whole month where I could just wait until the chaplain of state kind of hit me <laughs> up with the sequences, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, but to me, like it, getting that box and opening it up and taking out that that collective that, that you know just holding. I don't think I have the black and white one here, but I have these. But just being able to pick this up and hold it in my hands, just just to be able to hold it and take it and read it, and read it myself, that that was success. Nothing yeah. else. No, like we were nominated for an Eisner, and I did hyperventilate whenever I got that email. I did. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not ashamed to admit it. I did hyperventilate. Uh, I couldn't even talk to John whenever I called him. Like, oh, he thought I was having a heart attack, but no. Anyway. Um, yes, it was an awesome experience. It was awesome to go to the Eisners. It was awesome to get picked up by source points. And uh, it's awesome to be able to get this far and to have this. And it's awesome to talk about it. But for me, just picking it up and holding it in my hands and being able to put it on my shelf and be able to read it and sit there and read through it and then look at my shelf and I have it like, you know, there's my Alan Moore's, you know, um, uh, there, there's blankets, there's... Uh, uh, my Don Rosa's, you know, all the things are top shelf to me, you know, the top, top shelf. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm not there, but maybe a shelf or two below it. And I feel like it belongs on a shelf or two below it, you know? I think I can fit in with these dudes, you know? Um, that that was success. Anything else is just icing, you know? Everything else is just icing. And it's so liberating. I'm like, it made me a much better creator. It made me so much more um conscious of my own intuition um so much so that like i remember there was a time whenever this first issue whenever it was just in pages i printed it all out had it all lettered and i laid it all out and just looked at it to see how it looked and how it flowed and then i sat there and i was like okay i'm going to read this for like you know copy reading you know just make sure i'm not spelling misspelling something and i go through and i'm reading it and i get like 10, 20, and that was more than that, like 20 pages into it. Then I realized I'm not reading it with a critical eye anymore. I'm just reading it because I enjoy it. I'm like, holy shit, I made something I enjoy. <laughs> I, that's, I didn't know that was a feeling that you could have. <laughs> I didn't know I could enjoy my own stuff. <laughs> I thought that was ghost if you enjoyed your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, I know all those artists are like that. And I'm like, I don't. But, you know, I actually enjoyed my own stuff. I, I'm not, and I'm not ashamed to admit it now. I would have been before. You're not supposed to enjoy your own stuff, you know? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I had, had the same feeling. Well, I, I think Matt and I can both relate to that. It, it feels great. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just to have some, just to say that you did something, you know? Yeah. And that you're proud of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow. So, it's a cool feeling. I didn't know it was I didn't know it was a thing you could have. <laughs> I went nearly forty years of my life not knowing that that was something you could do. <laughs> oh man, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the way you just phrased all of that was 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 really amazing. And um, oh, uh, so, you know, we talked a lot about the people who show up, uh, you know, early on in the book. But there's there's some people who show up later in the book, and I I, I don't want to like say who it is, but there's a certain director who shows up to help Charlie uh, finish the book. Uh, was was that something you were really looking forward to to adding there? Yeah, definitely. Well, because you know, so it goes along with John. So John's still working on his dissertation, and now he's getting further into it and has 
he kind of got wise to my manipulations. I'm not that good that I could keep up that game. <laughs> so he's <laughs> buried in his dissertation. And, um, and so I'm like working on the book and I'm like, all right, I have this new idea for the book because I read this whole thing about uh, Errol Flynn and how could you have Errol Flynn and not have him doing some swashbuckling on a boat? And his favorite thing in the world was his boat, the Zaka. So we've got to have that in it. And if we're going to do that, we might as well have them sail to England. <laughs> so why sail to England? So they can be in the bombing of London. Why not? And John's like, because he felt like something I typically do is go into the weeds. Like, I just like, you know, it's that picture of the, of the, the meme of the car driving up the off-ramp and going, like going the wrong way. So I just like, I see the weeds. I just go straight for it. You know, it's like, I think there's something out there. Those fields are like <laughs> and rip the wheel into the field and then we get lost you know so he thought that was going to happen but i kind of had more confidence and i had a sense of where i was going so when we did that and then like okay we're going to london it's like okay we need a director and he's like okay it's fritz lang he's gonna oh. know fritz lang spoiler alert i haven't gotten to that part yet it's not fritz um, that's the whole thing yeah oh, okay phew okay so it's not fritz lang so uh i was like it's gonna be fritz lang and then it's like no, if we're going to do it, we should really do it. If we're really going to do it, we should really do it. And that's why we picked it. And whenever I so told John, I got this. Uh, it was a good idea. Nice. I think I know who it is then just from that, but I'm excited to get to that spot because I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to get there. Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, I figured that. I was like, I'm like, I'm guessing it's not Quentin Tarantino. Um, it, uh, is, it is. I told a Tarantino. We rewrote history. We wrote history and put Tarantino in there. That's his dream. That'll be his tenth film. Glorious yeah. Bastards is a huge influence on this thing. Nice. I could tell, and in a good way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because for me, that that movie was a revelation. Because it's like, well, you remember when Ain't It Cool News was still Ain't It Cool, and they you you'd get like Tarantino's script like three years before he made it. And I remember mm-hmm. reading it, I'm like, oh my God, Hitler's going to the premiere? Okay, uh, of course, they're, they're not going to blow up the place now because Hitler's there. There's no way they're going to kill Hitler. You can't do that in the story. And then I got to that part, I was like, holy shit, did they just kill Hitler? And I was like, oh my, he killed Hitler. How can you kill Hitler? You can't do that. And I was like, oh my God, this is genius. Of course you can. Because it like ripped everything back to as if, you know, if you watch like Notorious, if you watch like, um, uh, a really good one is Foreign Correspondent. You watch like yeah. movies from that era and it's like, they don't know where this war, even Casablanca, they don't know where this thing is going. They don't, they're making this movie in the thick of it. And you can kind of sense that in the storytelling. And that's what Tarantino did. And um, he actually connected with that. He connected with that vibe of being like, you're still in it and you don't know what the, the conclusion of this thing is. That is, that's a stroke of genius. That is that's a great dictator genius. too. Yeah, great yeah. dictator at the same time being made then. Hell, while he's making the great dictator, Chapman's making the great dictator, that's whenever Germany invades uh, France and that's when World War II starts. You know, he's making the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Could you, just to get in that mindset of what that must've been like for them, making it and viewing it at the same time. And Tarantino did that with *Inglorious Bastards*. He got you. He did it again with *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*. He got you to like see this thing anew, as though you are actually seeing it and viewing it, 
if you would have viewed it at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's marvelous. That's marvelous. You know, it's like what five grades to Cairo whenever they have Rommel in it. It's so freaking weird because he's alive actually doing shit in Africa while they're making this movie. <laughs> you know, Rommel's actually a general while while Billy Wilder's making five grades to Cairo. It's like that mindset. It's like it's so weird, you know, because they don't have the they don't have the history and the what we have the retrospect and looking back. And we come from a place of safety, you know, because we know how it ends. And then for Tarantino to rip that Band-Aid off and show us that we don't, that was genius. That was pure genius. And along with the the end of the book, and Noah brought up some of the, the page design that you did with uh, some of the, like, the repeating moments. Uh, at the end, when we, we have certain members of the, the team in an inside location, we have certain members of the team on an outside location, you do these really cool page design things where, where oh, you play you. with the... Uh, with the borders and, and the gutters. So was that your design or who, yeah. so that was you again? Yeah, so um, uh, that that was the Sergio Leone's thing that I was talking about. Yeah. If you remember like in the magazine, like how he does like the, the things in the gutters? Mm-hmm. I always loved it. Like that was my favorite thing in that magazine. Cause you're, it's like you're finding something, you know, you're, find, you're finding something secret. You're finding this like little hidden thing that you would tell this little joke and maybe there'll be like, Maybe, you know, as a kid, it's like, you know, you're eight and it's like, oh, there's boobies. And it's just like two dots. It's like a, two C, it's a C and a backward C and two dots, you know, and it's Sergio Doty's thing that's like an eighth of an inch tall. It's like, oh, there's you naked. <laughs> you know, there was something fun about that. And I always dug that. It's like, how can you take that and fold it into the story itself? Now, originally it was like I had the, the A story and the B story, like you typically have in one of these kind of stories. The, the high story like this, you know, or a, a break in, you have, you have team A and team B and then they meet in the middle. And it was just eating up pages and it was causing, I could just feel it while I was, while I was writing, I just could feel that it was like, um, it, it was slowing the progress down. And it's something I have noticed, you know, it's, it's like being a cre- creating something like this and like just, I, and noticing and seeing how other people build things like as much shit as lucas gets for like phantom menace he has like four storylines going on at the end of phantom menace and the the it's still propulsive that is so freaking hard i know now that i've tried it Mm -hmm. uh it is so freaking hard to keep the momentum going forward now if you notice one of the ways he does it like in phantom menace is the plot points are the same in all three, in all four things, the Gungans, your Padme doing her thing, you know, Anakin doing this thing and the you know, Duel of the Fates, you know, so boom, 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 boom. Every aspect, there is like a shutdown, you know, there's there, there's a, a climax and then there's a peak in a valley and all the peaks and valleys align through those four things. It's still so freaking hard to do. Um, so I punted. <laughs> I punted since I couldn't get it to work as well as I wanted it to. So I was like, I still got to show the forward progression. Well, how can I do it? I do it as Sergio Goni style. I'll stick it in the gutters because we kind of know what Errol's doing. We know what the we know what the B team is doing. Errol and Betty, we, we get what they're doing. Um, so it would be more fun if they're kind of doing it through the gutters. And you know, we follow we follow the A story through the panels, and the B story takes place in the gutters, you know, and we follow the gutters around. We follow the margin as they climb up to the top, you know, just so that you're, at first, and I kind of paced it that way, it's like, okay, I'll get people aware of this is happening because the margin is just them climbing. 
I mean, what, how many different things? That was the part that, 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 that tricked me up was like, they're climbing a mountain. I have to keep coming back to them climbing a mountain to show them making forward progress. Boom, 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 boom. And it's slowing down the pace of everything else. So, the, but, but at the same time, it's kind of like, since it's just kind of there and you just kind of see it as they go up, then whenever you get to the, the, the uh, two double page spreads where you can actually follow them once they break into the, the, uh, um, uh, the fortress and then they're going through the gutters, it's still like secondary information, but uh, it's something. It's it, it's something that I love myself. Is that it's something that I love more than that, that is uniquely comics. Is that relationship that you have with the audience, and it's the way that you guide the audience through a story and material. Because whenever an audience member, whenever you're when you're a reader and you open up a book, you open up a comic book, you open up these pages. As soon as you open up these pages, you know, you see, you, you see all these panels. And then as soon as you go to the next one, it's spoiled. Mm -hmm. I, this panel spoils the rest of it. And see, I became aware of that through making this first issue. And I got better at orchestrating that, making sure that my page turns. Because the only thing that's holding the spoiler back is the page turn. Then the, the, seeing the, 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 the entire spread, whenever you turn that page, you see the entire spread um, the, the gestalt of the entire spread. You see the whole thing. And um, then you have to actively, as the reader, go back and construct it from panel to panel to panel. And then the action, going back to Scott McCloud, the action is happening in the gutters. Everything in comics happens in the gutters. So you're reading those panels and the action and the way the panels tie together is happening in the gutters and otherwise... In other words, it's happening in your mind. Mm -hmm. The reader's mind is stitching those together. So you're actually a little bit more in concert with the reader where it's, as the writer and the creator of the comic, you have to at the same time be in a dance with the, uh, with the reader. You're not just pushing them, okay? Film is more propulsive. It's going 24 frames a second with sound and audio and it's just moving forward. You're just pushing them off the bridge. Push, push, push. You know, you're pushing that audience or just dragging them through the thing, you know, whereas comics, because you're reliant upon the audience to reconstruct this thing in their head, it's more of a dance. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you're, you're leading the dance, but they've still got to follow you. And that became so much fun trying to figure that out. And remember, my first audience is me. So I was trying to break it down and see and try to lead myself through this story, too. You know, I got addicted to that thing that I said where I was like, I read this thing, I read like 20 pages, like, oh my God, I like my own thing. I kept wanting to do that. So I kept trying to make something. And I knew in the back of my head, I knew I made this thing, of course. You know, I know where it's going to go. But it's like, can I just like try to get into a head to head space where I, I can surprise myself? You know, even though I know I could try to imagine myself as a reader flipping through this thing. And, um, that was one part there with the, the Sergio Agoni's, uh, you know, uh, gutter thing, you know, that was a part that kind of surprised me that that was my solution of how, how I could take these two stories and kind of merge them together. And it's something that could only uniquely happen in comics, which is mm -hmm. why I loved it so damn much. Lucas can do that because he's got music. He's got uh, 24 frames a second. He's pushing you through it. It's propulsive. Boom, 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 boom. I can't do that. It's not, you know, I've got, you know, as, as you're turning the pages, you're, as you have the audience trying to, the reader trying to piece this thing back together, you can't push them through it. 
you got to kind of coax them and guide them through it. And so also the other thing is you can layer information on top of each other in ways that you can't in film. And that part is so much fun. It's fun to read and it's fun to make whenever you can just layer information on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And then like as you're sifting through it and you, you get one, one pass and then you, you also can slow down and read it again and follow it again. Um, you know, the best creators are the ones that can, that can manage that, like Alan Moore. You know, he totally did that with Watchmen, like to a phenomenal degree that I don't even comprehend how he built that thing. That thing, he built something that should not exist. Uh, but, you know, whenever you like look at that page with Dr. Manhattan holding the, photo, the photograph in his hands, and he says, you know, in 12 seconds, it's on the ground right now, and it's in my hand, the photograph is in my hand. In 12 seconds, it's on the ground. It's also on the ground, it's in my hand. On that page, it is simultaneously on the ground and in his hand. Our brains put those panels together and see Dr. Manhattan holding the photograph and the photograph falling to the Martian ground. Um, We construct it in our head. When we first see it, we see the entire thing. And then we have to put it together. Fucking Alan Moore made us become Dr. Manhattan. He, through through comics, through the visual language of comics, he allowed us to see what it's like to think like Dr. Manhattan, to see outside of time, to create and construct the time consciously in your brain. I, okay, that breaks my brain every time I think about it. But that's what I'm trying to achieve every time. It's like, can I do that? Can I, can I make the reader feel like that they are creating this thing too? That they are dancing and not being pushed, you know? That they're dancing with this thing. So anyway. <laughs> well, I, I think you certainly succeeded. I, I, I really enjoyed those pages. Um, and it was, you know, you talked about the pacing and like, you know, we have this team that's coming up the, the, the side of a mountain and it was just sort of like, all right, I'm here. They're, they're at the bottom. They're in the middle. They're three quarters of the way. So like, I'm just like, I'm anticipating watching them the whole time. I'm like, all right, they're getting closer. They're closer. Now it's going to happen. But I, you know, I had to go through those four steps to, or three or four steps to get there. So I just, I just really enjoyed that as well. So I think those, I think those are designed really well. Oh, thank you so much. The other thing that it's a little bit of a spoiler, the other page that I'm really proud of, there's a couple of things. Like one is like the dance that I had with Dexter. So like I would see things coming out of Dexter. It's like, okay, you kind of need to work on these things. I'm going to give you something that you hate to do. I know it, but I'm going to make you do it because it's going to make you a better artist. You're going to draw a freaking airplane. You're going to draw boats. You're going to draw all these things that you've never driven, have never driven or drew before. I'm going to make you draw, you know, I'm going to force you to draw these things. I want to give you tons of photo references, tons of sketches, but you're going to, you're going to, I want you to flex your drawing muscles, Dexter. The other thing is that then I would see things like, okay, he's getting so good. Oh my God. Look at how well he's able to capture expressions throughout the entire book. This is why, you know, me as a, as an artist myself, why I'm paying, paying money to, to another artist to make something is because I can't do this. I can't draw a character and have it go through a bunch of different expressions and make it look like the same damn character. Mm-hmm. He can. And so then I just try to push that to the furthest degree possible where it's just like what Noah was talking about, like the panels and the sequences where it's like, okay, we're just going to have a panel, just like six panels of Chaplin making funny faces or six panels, a Chaplin laughing in different ways. Um, 
you know, it becomes very Bill Watterson with Calvin and Hobbes, you know, like how he would have like an entire Sunday strip is just Calvin making faces, you know, pull that out of him and see if he can do that. I love being able to do that. And like, like I said, every morning or every day that I got one of those is Christmas morning. Every day I got one of those pages. To me, that was like 192 Christmas mornings, (laughs) popping that email open and seeing that. Oh my God, it was wonderful. And and like some of those, like those ones, whenever I could, you know, have him play with expressions and stuff. And it, it, it came out better than I could have ever dreamed. So beautiful. The other thing too was the part that I really, that I'm happy about myself because I lettered this thing myself, was there something I wanted to do? I had this idea in my head and I didn't know if I could pull it off. But you know, it's like, I'm a graphic designer. I better pull this freaking thing off. I better be able to have the skill set to do this. Otherwise, what the hell did I go to college for? Um, uh, what, what the hell did I even do this degree for? And what I wanted to do was I wanted the word balloons to become a noose and choke Hitler. Whenever um, Chaplin is giving that amazing speech, the speech that like made this whole thing possible was that speech that is in uh, the great dictator that you see shared on Facebook. Um, I wanted that speech to choke Hitler. And so we designed the page and I laid, you know, laid it all out and then figured out how to make the word balloon snake around Hitler's neck. Um, and yeah, the design, when you just straight up look at it, it's, it does what word balloons aren't supposed to do, which is draws attention to the word balloons in it. It segments and creates tension and creates like uh, um, tangents in ways that, you know, word balloons shouldn't. But uh, it's what needed to happen to be able to make that happen. And it it took, that was the hardest thing I've ever lettered was that page. And I finally pulled it off. And, and, you know, it's just this this little visual gag that to me made me happy. It's just like, yes, I want to take somebody that that I completely revere now, like Chaplin, him making this thing, making the great dictator, that was such a ballsy decision, such an amazing move for somebody at his stature to just tell, just to drop all pretense, talk to the world as himself and say like, no, don't do this. Men, you're not machines, you're men. You're not cattle, you don't have to listen. He implored the world not to go into World War II. He implored them to as chaplain. He drops all pretense at that point and just, talks directly to the audience one of the greatest speeches in all human history and i want to see hitler choke on that i just wanted that so bad i just want to see him choke on those words so and i think i feel like i succeeded i don't know if someone else does but i succeeded to where i was happy with it which was very hard it was like i said i spent more time lettering that page than i did like an entire issue for some of the other stuff no, I having you know as you're talking about it, I'm seeing that page in my mind's eye, and, and I'm I'm remembering it, and uh, I, I didn't put that together at at that moment, but now now right. I see it, um, and you know a lot of times Noah and I talk about you know with a letterer you don't notice them unless they did something wrong, and you right. you mentioned that earlier, but you're actually you're using the word balloons as a design element where most of the time they're, they're, they don't want to, I mean, they, they do help lead the eye and stuff like that, right. but like you're actually leading the eye and doing something as a design element with, with the character. So that's, that's really cool. And I, I really Thank appreciate you. that. Yeah. It yeah. was like thinking like my things that I've been taught to be like, that's bad design. It's like, okay, but I'm going to do it here 
because it's going to make it work. The only way it makes it work is if I may do bad design, you know? Well, <laughs> it's, it's a little me. bit of, it's a little bit of that. You have to know the rules to, to, to break them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, it's also like, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's knowing the rules to break them and also just sort of realizing like there are no rules, right. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, I, I can't remember what book I was reading the other day, but I was, the composition was way off on the page. Like it didn't lead my eye around at all, you know, like, uh, but I was sucked into the story and I didn't care. It wasn't until I kind of zoomed out and I was like, Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't have the like arrows pointing, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, but my eye let, like I wrote it, I read it as fast as any, I read any comic, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you're pushing the boundaries because like, yeah, why don't people play with the lettering more, you know? Yeah. And there are books that do that. Like, you know, like sex criminals does it amazingly. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, I could probably come up with other examples, but I thought Hickman about it. Used to. But Hickman, like, you know, my, one of my, lately, but yeah, Hickman used to. Yeah. Hickman used to do it. And um Oh, man, I was just reading something recently, too. It's not a good book, but like Fight Club 2 and Fight Club 3, like Chuck Palahniuk wrote that into that book, too, like sort of playing with the lettering and like, you know, things being blocked out and stuff, which is, is that which David great. Mack? Did he do the insides, too? Uh, no, uh, he who shall not be named uh, Cameron Stewart did. Uh, um, it, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, it, uh, yeah. Mack did that really well with Kabuki. Mack yeah. He is a bad um, but it's just sort of one of those things where it's like, but at the same time, like when you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, why don't people do that more? You know, like, it's just sort of that it, it that's always, that's always a good choice is when people ask that question, right. Yeah. Is like, why don't people do that more? Yeah. Well, you know? I think that's one of the things that ended up with this. Like I said, I was just trying to satisfy myself. So like even coloring decisions, it's like, this isn't normal coloring. This isn't like a Marvel DC coloring. I'm, I have my own template that I want to go with. So I'm being influenced by like Maxwell Parrish. I'm being, you know, influenced by uh, uh, Norman Rockwell and Montgomery Flagg, you know, and classic illustrators. Uh, and um, that's what I was trying to tip, dip into is that kind of, because also it felt like this is a way that I could make this, especially when I did the coloring, because, you know, I, I spent another like year and a half coloring the thing once uh, SourcePoint picked it up. And um, I, I, I kind of wanted to make it look reflective of the time period, but not reflective in the time period, such as like what you would think is like making it look, you know, action comics, detective comics, you know, 1940s comics style mm -hmm. with like really harsh, you know, uh, dot, dot game and stuff. You know, that's been done. I wanted to dip into, okay, what was like 1930s, 40s illustration style like? And I want to dip into that color palette. So um, I have a couple of questions for you uh, about the, the book in general. So yeah. uh, it's it's going to be in previews very soon, or is it in previews now? Oh, it's in previews right now. It's in previews um, right now. Um, so and then it's in shops. Shops. Uh, what day is it in shops? June 28th. Okay. And so certainly the way you, you end this, um, you sort of give a wink and a nod that uh, the adventures of these, the, these three that we're with uh, can continue. Um, is that something that you want to, you want to revisit this and you just sort of set this up that you, you're giving us a wink and a nod that these, 
these three are on the road together and, and we might see them again? Yeah, we, John and I keep going, coming back and forth. And we, we have some ideas. We have some real, there, there's some things that we, um, we learned in our research that is like would lend to a sequel. Plus also we, uh, we had different ideas for um, what a sequel would be like and still do the things that a sequel needs to do that just doesn't feel like a double dip. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is the, the more that we re, more that we come back to it, we will probably do um, uh, the Ministry of Unjumbling Warfare. That's probably where we'll go. Very cool. So, and uh, so you know more with this uh, a, a possible sequel. But is there anything else that you sort of uh, have in the in the pipeline that you that you want to work on? Yeah, I'm working on. Um, I have a comic that I'm working on with Dexter right now. We've we've got like about probably like 120 pages of it done. Um, and what what happened there was is like we had quite a bit of it done. I wanted to have like three or four issues done before uh, uh, I started taking it around and uh, shopping it around because um, it's a quasi ongoing. You know, it's a long form. And uh, and then the pandemic happened. You know. Uh, and so like, I, I don't want to be on a slush pile. I don't want to be in somebody's inbox. I, you know, I want to make connections. I want to go talk to editors and meet editors at cons and stuff. So until the con season comes back up again, I wasn't going to take it around. So we just kept working on it. And so now it's like, we've got like what, six or eight issues worth of content. But um, yeah, we're still working on that. Uh, and then I'm working on another book with uh, another uh, illustrator. Uh, his name's Sean Koss. He, uh, he um, has a very creepy art style and does like album covers for bands like Seether and other like metal bands. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff's like a hot topic and stuff. He was a student of mine um, many years ago and we've always stayed in contact and always wanted to work together. And so we're working on a book right now uh, that's very different because he, he doesn't come from a comic background and it's kind of like one of those fun things where I, can, I still love being a teacher and I love being there like, instruct and show it's like you always want to make a comic book so it's like okay here i'll teach you the visual vocabulary of how to make this comic but also i want to dip into your style and not make it like something that dexter would do i want to make it something that sean cost would do you know i want it to be in his wheelhouse in his style in his his way because there's 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 the way that you draw an image and you know all of all of the lines that an artist makes and stuff is they're like little shorthand way of describing something. It's their own like little visual vocabulary. And Dexter's visual vocabulary is very different from Sean's visual vocabulary. And that and I, that even leads into what I would think of a Sean cost panel design would look like it would be very different than Dexter's panel design. Mm-hmm. Dexter's panel design is much more um, like he grew up like reading George Perez books and uh, Jim Lee is like his favorite artist and uh, you know the late 80s early 90s DC and Marvel stuff because you know in the Philippines his dad used to bring them home comics from the GIs that were at the base over there so that was his his way of getting American comic books was from the you know secondhand books from the GIs um, so that's his style was that very much that 80s 90, 80s early 90s style um, He's really branched off from that, but that was like where he was at the beginning. He's really developed his own style that's uniquely him. 
Um, I really think you saw, saw that come to life during uh, Fury of the Tramp. Um, but then that style is, is way different than like what Sean's is. And so that, to me, that balance is a lot of fun. Like today I spent a whole day doing uh, layouts for Sean Cost for, for the next couple of pages. And uh, it's, it's just so much fun to go in that territory and jump into that well and try to do something that's horror, creepy, weird, Tim Burton-y kind of, you know, versus something that's more Dexter, which is, you know, a little bit more, you know, Perez, Jim Lee, you know, let's help more into that kind of style. Um, I try to be very sensitive of my artists. Coming from an artist background myself and being an artist myself, it's like I'm very sensitive of their styles and, and their, their mode of storytelling. So even the way that I'll break down the lettering in Sean Koss's book, and the book I'm working with him is going to be very, very different. It's going to be, uh, you know, much more part of the art, you know, much more, you know, we see like, yeah, you have your comic page, you have your page, and then there's a layer above it where the it bubbles exist. When I'm working on these pages with Sean, it's like that those are condensed, you know, it's like okay. those are flattened, where like the letters become the art, you know. Um, something that David Mack does, we were talking, we just mentioned David Mack. David Mack did that beautifully in like his Daredevil stuff and, and Kabuki. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he's really good at combining the Texas image, you know? Um, and, and so it's fun playing with that with, with uh, Sean. Nice. So um, Noah, I'm going to check in with you to see if you have any uh, like final thoughts or uh, any final questions here. Um, yeah. I just had a question about that, that next book with Dexter. I, I follow him on Instagram. Is it that, is it that book that he has like the like the cool combat like you know like soldiers and stuff like that or is that um, a different book that no that's uh, kevin powers kevin powers is doing that one uh okay uh, so he one. hasn't posted any art for this no this he has one. it's the werewolf yes. okay okay it's that <laughs> one all right yeah that looks awesome then that's uh that, i just wanted a clarification question also yeah. if anyone's out there listening and wants to get excited like that's the, the one it book. looks <laughs> awesome cool. his artwork is awesome in it it's yeah. so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I reached out to Dexter the last time you were on. I wasn't able to make the show when you were on last. And yeah. I reached out to him because I was like, I would love to talk to this guy. And I think maybe there might be a, a bit of a language barrier or something. Um, um I don't know. So like I, I, I talked to Dexter every day on Facebook, but I, okay. I I called him one day and that was the day that I hyperventilated because we got nominated for an Eisner which also was the same day that I was going to my friend's bachelor party, which was seeing Avengers Endgame. So it was just like uh, my head's exploding in 17 different different ways. So of course I had to call Dexter. So I wasn't gonna send him an email and tell him that we're nominated for nice. I was gonna try to get him flown over here, but it's a six month process to get a, a visa from the Philippines to here, from their government, not ours. Um, so I, uh, so I called him and that was the first time I ever talked to him. Uh, he, he has, he's, um, uh, he has a very thick accent, but he, he's understandable. He has, he's, has a very good, strong grasp of English. Um, uh, I think he probably could pull it off. I would love to be there for it because I've never like talked to him. Like I've never done that. I've never yeah, well, we'd... Face, face to face. And he's like a brother to me. Like, you know, we, we talk about kids all the time, you know, we're, we're like, you know, sharing pictures of our meals that we're cooking, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, yeah. He's my brother from a, that's on the other side of the planet that I've never met. Uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, if you can bridge that gap, 
amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah, we'd love to have you both on, and of course, you're um, you're always welcome back on because yeah, you're a wealth of knowledge, and it, it was great talking <laughs> with you and interviewing you about this book. So, and come back so anytime. Nice. So I just I had a thought um, if we were able to work that out is uh, the, uh, one of the guys I work with, Wilson. He lives in Brazil. And like, much like you, I talk to him every day, either, you know, emails or text messages. Um, But every time I try to talk to him in person, he's always like, oh, no, English is not my first language. I'd be very uncomfortable with that. But he he recently did do a podcast where what they did was they sent him the questions beforehand so he could sort of think them out and sort of conduct the interview that way so that he wasn't sort of he was thinking on the fly but he had a way to sort of prepare beforehand so i don't know if that would be something that that would be helpful as well i think that's a great idea i think that's a really great idea yeah cool so also you know, we, Sean, i'm sorry no go ahead please if you don't, if you don't mind me just pitching this i'm, I'm no more we're top of whatever you're saying uh just that uh we, we've been talking about doing a kickstarter for this werewolf book um maybe that'd be a good time to do it we could yeah. talk about that train. yeah we have a lot of stuff to talk about yeah that definitely we would we would definitely be interested in if yeah like we said if we can sort of uh you know you know sort of give him a pre sort of interview questions or you know things that we want to talk about to sort of help him sort of be able to prepare that maybe that's something we do um but, yeah i can help you with that too Cool, cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, let's pencil that in. Um, but as we close up, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit um, in the sort of the pre-recording interview. Um, let's talk a little bit about the the importance of uh, of pre-ordering. You know, a non-big two book, a not a book that doesn't have Spider-Man or Batman on the cover. How important it is to tell your shop that this is the book that you want. Oh yeah, it's definitely important. It's very very important because. Uh, uh, you know, if you're not in that, that first, the, 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 the big guys that have the nice little section that like, what is it? Uh, well, DC isn't in there anymore, but Marvel has their own book. Dark Horse Image is Boom. Does Boom have their own section now? But you know what I mean? The, there was like first ones in the front. Yeah. Once you get back past those and you get to all the other guys, a lot of comic book stores are just don't even go in that section. But if, if you're not pre, if you're not pre-ordering it, your your LCL guy or, or LCS guy, he's he's not even looking at that shit himself. He's not he's flipping right past it. He's he might order one of every dark horse, one of every image, one of every or a couple of every image, couple of every whatever. But once you get back past that, you know um, the um, and any of those other publishers. It's up to you to order it because they're not going to. Um, some do, unless you're going to like Midtown Comics. They order one of everything, you know. Unless mm-hmm. you got a Mile High Comics or whatever. But even so, like Mile High, um, I I I, I uh, was talking to uh, somebody that works at Mile High, and uh, they sold out of my book because it was so underordered, and they ordered enough for the stores. But then by the time um, you know, those couple months, because I'm going to, you know, um, hopefully it picks up a little more steam. And that's what happened there. Like the first issue picked up more steam by the time it actually hit the shelves. Everybody had already called all those for, uh, for their pulls. So they had none for the shelves by the time any of these books actually hit. So like Mile High didn't even put it on the shelves. It went in everybody's pull list. But um, 
So yeah, that's the importance of, of pre-ordering. Um, and that's the other thing too, a lot of them, if they do order them, and then a book gets like the, uh, the first issue of this got a little bit of buzz on one of those app trackers. Um, you know, there's like those apps that like, tell you like that this is a key book and you should probably buy this book. Mm-hmm. You know, we got a little bit of traction on that, like, you know, the, 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 that collector market. And um, yeah, so like it, a lot of stores didn't even get it on the shelves. It just the people had already pulled it before it ever, you know, the ones they ordered for the store were already gone before they ever even hit. Yeah, and I think it, it's it doesn't happen all the time, but I think there's there is sometimes where there's a possibility that if you know, just say that like four people come to their LCS owner and say, "I want this," they might see that there's a tiny bit of buzz, and they might say, "All right, I'm gonna get six so that I can put two on the shelf." So you, you, there's 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 the possibility of uh, building up a little bit of like. Uh, location buzz or local buzz that the the owner will say, hey, I got a little bit of, you know, I got a little bit of my my customer base coming in. There must be something here. And they might be a little bit more likely to, to get a couple more to, to put up on the shelf. It's it's one of the best things you could do to support uh, indie talent is to do that, is, is to fill your pool list with indie books because the Marvel DC books, they're going to be on the shelf anyway, you mm-hmm. know? And, and they're already going to be there unless, you know, Bat- Batman whips his dick out in an issue and they'll fly off the shelves. <laughs> you know, other than that, they're going to have enough Batman books. You don't need to put in your pool list. We're, we're, and it's not really going to help DC's bottom line or help those artists. You're not going to help out, you know, uh, Scott Snyder or whoever, you know, they're, they're, they're already going to sell enough copies. Sure. The guys that are going to make a break are all those guys in the back end of previews. That back in the previous word gets hard. That's the and and, you know every but that that that's the game. That's where all those guys started. That's where Matt Fraction started in the back in the previews. That's where Robert Kirkman started in the back in the previews. Everybody starts there, you know. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll put a uh, a link to the to the preview page previews page for this in uh, in our show notes. But like where also to like keep up with this and keep up with you and 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 we'll probably put links to like Dexter's IG. But yeah. like where would be the best place to go to follow you? Uh, I have uh, Adolph and Charlie is the name of it on uh, Facebook because they find the term pure and I'm not allowed to use pure. <laughs> So, <laughs> but and I tried to tell him, it's like, man, I'm punching him in the face. <laughs> I'm saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. But no, no furors on. I got flagged for the dumbest page and got like suspended from Facebook because of the dumbest page. It's like, no, I'm not like, a, I'm not a neo Nazi. I'm not a white. I'm not a proud boy. I'm very <laughs> much the opposite. You know, I'm an unproud boy. I'm like, whatever's the opposite of proud boy, that's me. You know, that but yeah they're, they don't care the algorithm doesn't give a shit so anyway Adolph and Charlie but you can I think you can search it by if you're in the tramp because it'll come up that way mm-hmm. but yeah if you're in the tramp on Facebook that's mainly what I do because uh, I'm old um, I do some Instagram I don't do Twitter at all because it always makes me mad I get very mad on Twitter awesome and I will Again, my own personal recommendation for, and I talked about this earlier, is, is your web page where you have the 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 outline structures. Because I the, the thing that I'm working on now, I, I'm using. I've made a few tweaks to it, but that's that's what I'm using. So I'll give a, a plug for for your web page. 
<laughs> no worries. It, 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 it's it's been very it's been very helpful for me because uh, I I've, I've been to, I've been known to to meander. So I, I'm not meandering because I'm like I got you know I got this many pages I got to get this done. So yeah, you know it's like I never liked being structured and uh, doing that and creating that kind of forced me to be structured but also that somebody else can pick that up and see the value in it and be able to use it it just makes me so happy it just really makes me really happy Matt that you were able to use that and that was a benefit to you uh, oh. no I, uh, I appreciate it so yeah I I, I, I will put a I, I would encourage anybody who who wants to sort of take a look at the structure it's it's a very useful tool I should I should make more of those pages I've thought about it but I like, you know, with the, one of the part, one, the other thing that I would encourage, like, it's, it's very nice that you have that part of the podcast for uh, tr how you, how people can proactively, like, encourage creators and stuff. It, it's like not getting feedback at all is worse than getting negative feedback. N getting zero feedback, even if you just get a bunch of likes and there's no feedback. Those, those likes don't mean as much as somebody actually saying a meaningful comment, you know. Um, and like, I, I, I put in tons of hours into those pages and reformatting those emails and making them so that they would work and putting little cool gifts in it and stuff and not getting any feedback at all on it. And then I just kind of like, well, I guess no one cares. And, but, you know, oh, just to hear that one person cared, now I'm going to go make 10 more of them, you know, <laughs> that's, 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 that's awesome. Well, um, Sean, um, you know, I, I love this book. Um, when, when I, when I had read it before when we had talked before, but when then I, I read it again today to just sort of refresh, but I was sort of chuckling because I'm like, Noah's going to love this. He's just a, he's an old soul and <laughs> it's just going to speak to him so much. So I, I'm glad that Noah was able to, to join us this time as well. well. Me too. Yeah, yeah me too. I was very glad. It, it's a great book. And I, I, I guess I'm going to read the rest of it tonight because it's just, yeah, it's, it's what's wonderful. I can't awesome. wait to hear what you, what you think of it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. So I'd like to uh, thank everybody for listening. If you could give us a rating or a review on the podcasting service you use, really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter at ConstructComPod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod, and Facebook is um, Constructing Comics. There's going to be links to our social media and links to, to Sean's stuff that he had mentioned earlier. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, please be safe, be nice to each other and go out there and make some comics. Thank you. <laughs>